What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with my top 25 NBA players under 25 right this second. But before we dive into that, I just want to remind you to continue subscribing to us wherever you consume us. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe and like button to help the algorithm love us back. Comments go a long way as well. If you are on a podcast player, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, and you have not subscribed to us yet, please consider throwing us that permanent subscription. Grant and I do a seriously unserious job of covering the league, but we also try to be be thorough and level-headed, but mostly just have a bunch of fun. Consider throwing us that permanent subscription and cross-subscribe. If you're on a podcast player, head over to YouTube, hit that sub button. If you're on YouTube, download us from Apple, Spotify, um, just to help us continue growing the community. Uh, promote helping us promote the podcast if you retweet us on twitter goes a long way shouting us out on twitter or any social media platform join our discord as well the link to that is in the podcast and youtube descriptions follow all our social handles which are also in the podcast and youtube descriptions and finally referrals tell people about us i've actually had people that have come to me in the dms and said that the podcast has recommended them from someone they don't drop names but I, i super appreciate that so if you continue doing that so that we can once again continue growing this community I would be very much appreciative, and so I know would my co-host, Grant Hughes. Now we get into the NBA's top 25 players under the age of 25 right now. The two qualifiers here, well, there's three. One, I did this for Bleach Report, and I've been given the go-ahead to um, go deeper or read these these articles in podcast form after after they've been published. Two, under 25, guys who are actually 25, Devin Booker, Larry Markkinen, they are not here. And this is a right now exercise, right in this moment as I'm recording this October, very early in the morning, October 26th or late at night on the 25th, depending on what you consider 3.30 in the morning Eastern time. Um, This is the rankings. I already regret at least a couple of them, the placements, but it's in the moment rankings. So you have to take that into consideration, which is why there are not a ton of rookies, although there is one that appears here. I didn't get Jaden Ivey or Benedict Matherin. If we were projecting forward, they would certainly be here. Um, with that, though, I think that that we can uh, get off and running in this. And we begin, as I'll throw this up on the screen for people on YouTube to follow along, at number 25 with R.J. Barrett. Figuring out who gets the final nod in this shindig or the last nod, however you want to phrase this, uh, super difficult. Just super difficult. Uh, rookie candidates, Jay Navi, Benedict Matherin, were easy to exclude on the basis of inexperience. Nixing everyone else after that was sort of tougher and purposely nitpicky it could have been michael porter jr if he didn't have chronic back issues in his rear view colin sexton could heat up at any moment for an extended period of time anthony simons is always one shot away from being um one shot away from an absolute heater leaving off wendell carter jr stings the most i think for me kelton johnson as well too um those guys are who i heavily most considered those two for number 26 along with anthony simons the porter back issues it was just easy to exclude him here i think that durability throughout what we've seen thus far actually matters. I went with RJ Barrett. He edges everyone else out thanks to his relentless rim pressure, more proven spot up three, despite what we've seen to start this season, and a defensive role that is higher profile than than many think, I believe. Right, wrong, who the hell knows, but Barrett has already ratcheted up his finishing at the rim amid some bizarro offensive decision-making this year. I'm trusting in this positive development, the passes he has thrown when the floor is spread, the power wing turn he made last season, and his bandwidth for shape-shifting his offensive archetype relative to the lineup in which he plays. I just think his track record probably warrants a little more favor here than that of Wendell Carter Jr., who popped last year in Orlando. Um, Then Keldon Johnson, who I guess has kind of been on the 
similar level to RJ Barrett for as long. Anthony Simon's really becoming that full season explosive player last year, picking up where he left off. Again, Michael Porter Jr. with the durability issues. Colin Sexton, if he plays last season, who knows where he is. Gary Trent Jr. was considered here as well. So was Devin Vassell. This is tough. I view this exercise as we go into it as having 23 locks and then a 24th lock and who's about to show up just because I thought he needed to be in here. And so that really left me with one spot. Number 24, with this in mind, Paolo Bancaro of the Orlando Magic. I don't fucking care. I don't fucking care. Uh, Has he only appeared in four career regular season games at this writing? Yes. Do I fucking care? As I just said, not even sort of. Okay, I kind of care. I had to nudge him higher. I was talked out of... I, I had the urge, excuse me, to nudge him higher. I was talked out of it once more because these aren't projections. They are in the moment rankings. No rookie, in theory, should sneak onto this list. Bancar- Paolo Bancaro forced my hand. He isn't coming. He's here. His capacity to break down set defenses belies his age and skill. The things he does when he's in transition, grabs the ball, and goes is just astounding. Um, the complex blend of shots he's taking is mesmerizing. He's hit circus running layups and fades on the back of unending hang time. The jumper isn't falling, but it looks pretty, and it's going to fall eventually. Defenses might try to speed him up. Doesn't work. Bancaro's composure is reminiscent of Kate Cunningham to me. He will poke and prod and probe until he creates a sliver of space or a specific angle and then attacks. This isn't small sample size theater. Bancaro is only this low because he doesn't have a track record, but he's shown enough both in summer league and through the early part of the regular season to warrant the benefit of the doubt. No regrets here from me. Number 23, Tyler Hero of the Miami Heat. If you're mad about this already, I think it's a testament to how deep the league is. Uh, Distinguishing between Tyler Hero and Jordan Poole is often painted as this maddening exercise, but just because they're two not quite lead guards who can be targeted on defense, that doesn't make them eerily similar. Hero's value to me is most rooted in his outside shooting, which spans both on and away from the ball. Last season, he downed 37.5% of his pull-up threes and 42.2% of his spot-up triples, almost evenly splitting that volume. He can too heavily favor his off-the-dribble jumper inside the arc, but offsets part of that imbalance with the ability to attract defenses when he's in motion away from the ball. His pick-and-roll fluency has improved basically year over year. Poole comes across as more dispensable in Golden State when you look at the Warriors roster. What Hero does best is instrumental, instrumental meanwhile, to optimizing the half-court offense of a title hopeful. Up to this point, however, Hero's game has felt like it included one fewer level and less directionality on the attack. Maybe that changes this year. The share of his shots at the rim has, for the time being, skyrocketed. But don't get bogged down in the might-bes and the could-bes. Even this low, in quotes, if you're watching this, he's a top 25 under 25 lock, which sort of runs into the theory that I was positing before. Number 22 is Jordan Poole of the the Golden State Warriors. I did loop these two together for a reason, if you could tell in my explanation. Uh, Jordan Poole's case is both strengthened and repressed by his role. He contributed in a meaningful way to last year's champion, but his usage and returns will forever be warped by by being the Golden State Warriors' third guard. Picturing him independent of Stephen Curry specifically isn't hard. The Warriors don't treat Poole like an accessory. He has more of an every-level he, he is more of an every-level self-starter who meshes, meshes with others rather than a standstill play finisher who moonlights in initiation. His off-the-bounce attacks don't receive nearly enough credit. He mixes fluidity and misdirection and is historically a bankable finner, finisher around the basket. The 54.9% clip he's hit on twos over the past two years also comes amid a steady diet of mid-range jumpers. The next phase for Poole should feature more feel and control as a playmaker. He's off to a good start there. His first few games this season have seen him throw nifty pocket, non-target shuffle passes. He's been able to draw on defenses even when he's not scoring at a consistent clip. 
many will probably think that this finish lacks imagination. Perhaps that is an indictment on failing to value Jordan Poole beyond his setup in Golden State or overweighting the will he close every game for them issue, especially when you're looking at the postseason. That's the danger in these rankings. At the same time, Poole would have probably not made this list entering last year, and he's a shoo-in now. I think I think that matters, and we need to remember that. Number 21, Jared Allen. Absolute beast, Jared Allen. He may not be able to stave off Tyler Hero and Jordan Poole, among many others who don't even necessarily hit the top 25 um, for much longer, but he's there now. He's at an inherent disadvantage as a defensive backbone and offensive play finisher. These rankings tend to favor those with more influence over the offense. At the same time, looping Allen under that specialist umbrella undersells what he does. This dude was not an all-star by mistake. As I, I sort of pointed out when I was writing about him for Bleacher Report's NBA 100, general impressions of Jared Allen skew toward rim-protecting, screen-setting, play-finishing big man. And that prevailing sentiment just undersells what he does. His defense and mobility on the back line contribute to Evan Mobley's capacity to be everywhere else, basically. And while his offense is largely predicated on the primary playmakers beside him, he has diversified his portfolio to include reactive slips, one and two dribble decision-making in space, and an operable hook shot. He shot 52.8% on hook shots last year uh, on 127 attempts, so so real volume. Nothing has really changed to start 2022-2023. The numbers are more modest, but if anything, Allen's knack for moving without the ball and occupying spaces that don't obstruct Evan Mobley in the half court are more valuable to me, at least, than ever. Franz Wagner came in at number 20 for me. It's He's like, he was weird. He's 21. Um, he would not have cracked this list this time last year. And yet now dropping him outside the top 15 feels sort of icky. That's, you know, a vote of confidence for how good he already is. Wagner closed his rookie season as the consummate offensive fits all. He dropped in spot up jumpers and reached the rim off high IQ cuts, but he also kept defenses on tilt by attacking downhill off the catch, flinging floaters and finishing with force and finesse and fuck you at the basket. Even he, he busted out a hook shot from time to time. Most of that mystique has sustained this season. More importantly, intriguingly, whatever the Orlando magic are plumbing the depths of his offense. He flashed self-creation last season he hit nearly 35% of his pull-up threes after the All-Star break, and then he offered more of it in avalanches during Eurobasket. Magic head coach Jamal Mosley has responded by uncorking lineups in which Wagner is the de facto point guard and, and by increasing his pick-and-roll initiation. Around 70% of Wagner's made buckets right now have gone unassisted. That would be a monstrous increase over last year's 40.6% mark. It has not always looked pretty. Though Wagner is scoring fairly well out of the pick and roll and shooting 55.6% on his drives. But the fact Orlando can and should be exploring this mode of operation from him really says it all to me. Number 19 ended up being tough. Jaron Jackson Jr., the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, he still has not played this season. Again, we're taking into account how good they are right now, even if they're not available. If it was a season-ending injury, I might have done this differently. Uh, putting him at 19 was tough to stomach, but if comfortably cracking the top 25 from an, from an absurdly deep under 25 pools, the floor sign me all the way up. Jaron Jackson jr. Is coming off a season in which he was a genuine defensive player of the year. candidate candidate once maligned for his fouling issues. He tamped them down spiraling more. So in these compacted blips rather than steady droves, his bandwidth to be everywhere and hang with vers virtually any offensive archetype is, is flat out bonkers. 
The Memphis Grizzlies may be hesitant to roll him out at the five from the jump in part because of those foul troubles, but those lineups with him at the five are now less of a risk and more of just this cheat code. Jackson is far more question marks though. At the other end, his efficiency plunged last season. The Grizzlies did task him with more complicated usage, but not enough to explain away the drop His off the dribble work looked wonky and uncoordinated. And while his volume from deep holds value in itself, a sub 32% clip is concerning, especially because it dates back to the 2021 campaign where yeah, he had minimal appearances, but he was still in the low thirties from deep. Splitting hairs over availability is also fair. He's missed fewer than 15 games just once in four seasons. That was last year. And his recovery from a right foot injury has him on pace to miss 15 plus again. Um, That's an issue. Otherwise, he could just be a lot higher in this exercise, but still cracking the top 20 while you're injured. And there are just these efficiency question marks and uses question marks on offense. Again, that's that's big time from him. Jalen Green at 18, surprisingly difficult to place for me. I think he could be higher. I think he could be lower, depending on how you value impact. Uh, Green is tipped off the 2022-2023 campaign, though, much like he ended last season, getting ultra-difficult buckets. Um, through his first few games, he averaged over 23 points while downing 47.4% of his threes, including 50% of his off-the-dribble triples. His efficiency inside the arc verges on troubling, uh, below 45%, but he gets to the rim more than you think, and his conversion rate at the basket, both this season, which is 63%, and last, 60%, could plausibly be lower when you look at the degree of difficulty on these attempts. The Houston Rockets might come to find that Green is overtaxed. They use him as this offensive lifeline, a role his scoring arsenal can endure. His playmaking is very much TBD. He's not unwilling to move the ball, but he can telegraph his passes and be sloppy with the rock coming around screens and when entering traffic. These limitations, to be clear, are not knocks. Green's self-creation already ensures he's among the NBA's premier cornerstones. But this field is deep, and for now, there's more variability caked into his performances than many of the names that, that he's chasing. One of those names at number 17, Tyrese Maxey, another one where this feels really low. And then you look at the names in front of him and you're like, Oh, all right. How good is Tyrese Maxey? So good that the Philadelphia 76ers offense feels like it could rely less on James Harden, or at least carve out more solo time for their third year guard. Maxey is not gone kaboom to start the season, but efficiency gets skewed by the game this time of year. And uh, he's still clearing 20 points per game. Mind you, the set three point shot will be fine. And Philly's lane shouldn't seem so crowded. If head coach doc rivers ever gives them the license, maybe a mandate to play with any fucking semblance of pace whatsoever. Regardless last year, laid the groundwork for Maxi's trajectory. He was equally revelatory as the Sixers' second most important player. And then their James Harden and Joel Embiid compliment. That latter role is now his indefinite normal. And even if he seems criminally underutilized, he's wired to thrive. After Harden made his debut in Philly, Maxi parlayed blindingly fast straight line speed and his improved shooting stroke into third option dominance. He averaged 18.7 points and 3.5 assists per game on a supernova 48% clip from downtown. Proof his rising star can and will sustain every imaginable, imaginable iteration of the Sixers. Number 16, Scotty Barnes, Toronto Raptors. Another difficult one because I do feel like a lot of Barnes' appeal is rooted in concept rather than practice. Uh, he's difficult to place both in the short and long term for that reason. He teases possibility by doing so many different things, but his execution comes off lower key than a Maxi, than a Jordan Poole, than even a Tyler Hero. 
That inkling, to me, can be distilled down to opportunity. The Toronto Raptors seem committed to baptizing him by fire, featuring him in situations for which he might not be totally ready. Even as he took on slightly fewer front court touches before spraining his right ankle on Sunday, the vision was clear. They want him to be a primary decision maker. Roll out Barnes by himself, and the journey of self-discovery can get hazy and disjointed. Slot him inside lineups with two of Toronto's other primaries, and the future calcifies. He can bulldog his way to the bucket from above the break, draw doubles in the post, and most intriguingly, attack and decision-make at the processing speed of a floor general. We have definitely seen more of that in the half court in the early going this year. Blissful possibility easily buoys his inclusion here, close to the top 15. Barnes has managed to effectively impact the game as a functional adjunct while wading waist-deep into self-exploration. Where he sits now plays up all that remains unfinished, but rest assured, this spot at number 16 for the next few years feels like his absolute floor. Number 15. We're getting spicy here. Desmond Bain, the Memphis Grizzlies. I, Desmond Bain went from sparingly used sharpshooters, a rookie, to higher volume fringe star sniper with on-ball chops and defensive efforts you feel while watching as a sophomore. What does his third year have in store? Screw the slow start. The Memphis Grizzlies have him doing even more as a driver and facilitator, and he was missing a ton of open threes that will fall later. They started to fall when he went boom, boom, pow against the Mercurial Brooklyn Nets this week. To be honest, I'm not sure if he'll ever be initiating pick and rolls in mass or if the step back jumper will become a staple, but it, it looks freaking lethal now. Uh, Bain still plays with an air of what if Kyle Lowry was taller, which I think we've said a few times on this podcast now, and he's the quintessential toggles between multiple offensive existences building block. That functional duality is enough to curry favor over those with higher ceilings like Tyrese Maxey or Jordan Poole, maybe even teammate Jaron Jackson Jr. Those are guys who, again, might have higher peaks in theory, but who have more immediate question marks or glaring holes, and we're dealing in the here and now. Number 14. For me, Evan Mobley, this is like, I could see why people might put him lower. I could see why they might put him higher. That's just going to be the common refrain throughout this. Skip ahead a few years and Evan Mobley could feasibly top this list. Jump even further and he might be the best player in the NBA period. That is his ceiling if everything's come together. We don't quite know what it will look like because he's a bottomless mystery box on offense. Not so much formless, but ter terrifyingly moldable. Every face-up and spin, every turnaround and fadeaway invokes what if Kevin Durant was Kevin Garnett was Anthony Davis. Still, it must all come together first, and the Cleveland Cavaliers need to be more comfortable with Mobley sponging up second-string center reps to fully actualize the best version of himself and them. In the meantime, they can settle for an all-defense staple who blurs the line between big man anchor and point-of-attack Nat, and who can rack up points entirely within the flow of the larger offensive ecosystem while dabbling in peaks behind the my future as an NBA overlord curtain. Don't think it's a stretch to put him this high now. Again, I think others will argue that he's too low. Tyrese Halliburton at number 13, speaking of too low, he spent the first part of his career in a role with the Sacramento Kings deemed complimentary and therefore safe. It might have also been deemed redundant as well because of De'Aaron Fox. He provided flickers of self-creation, but deference was his default. Could he ever dominate or at least aggressively quarterback an offense? The Indiana Pacers bet on him having that extra face of the franchise gear. That wager is paying off. A four-game sample is nowhere near a tell-all, but Halliburton looks ready to play the part of primary maestro and scorer. He continues to make excellent use of space, but there is more surety and urgency to how he attacks. 
Already, he has unbottled step backs and escape dribble jumpers, as well as physical drives and wildly tough finishes, which he pairs with an air of controlled passing that always seems a few split seconds ahead of the defense. There's no overstating the agency Halliburton currently has over Indy's offense either. Among nearly 200 players averaging at least 15 minutes per game through multiple appearances so far this season, so at least two games, only Luka Doncic sees a smaller share of his buckets go unassisted. That is fucking mind-melting. If Halliburton doesn't qualify as primary building block material, I, I'm not sure what does at this point. Number 12, De'Aaron Fox. This is, you know, we talk about it's wild that Jason Tatum's still only 19. It's wild that while this is Fox's age 25 season, he's still only 24. So we qualified for this list, again, in the moment rankings. Uh, Fox's value is seesawed over his first half decade in the league, and, and not always unfairly. He has teased All-NBA command of an offense, only then frustrate with some combination of tunnel vision, poor shot selection, and defensive apathy. And every year, nearly without fail, he closes on the highest of notes, allowing rampant optimism to marinate before beginning the process all over again next season. Three games into this season, Fox seems ready to break the trend. Nobody should expect his dalliance with 45% shooting from deep to continue, but averaging around 32 points and seven assists while inflating his turnover total in one game is kind of it, like within his brand. Fox has always done enough to suggest his floater and step-back jumper a viable outlet, if not butting anchors. Driving has forever been his strength, even when not done nearly enough. He's doing it enough now. Only John Morant and Shea Gilgis-Alexander currently average more drives per game. All the while, Fox looks like a cleaner-than-expected fit off the ball. More of his shots are already coming from assists compared to last season, and even if the spot-up efficiency dips, he moves and orbits the Montes Sabonis like he knows he'll get the ball back. Congratulations to all of us, by the way, who didn't sell the Aaron Fox stock last November. Or any time thereafter, obviously. Number 11, DeAndre Ayton. Ayton is like... Look, putting Ayton here who's more of a play finisher ahead of offensive engines like De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton is not a decision I took lightly, but Aiton has done enough while hinting at the capacity to do even more for long enough to receive what I don't consider a controversial in the slightest nod. Aiton makes the call even easier with his scorching hot start to the season. He's averaging 19 points while dropping in nearly 60% of his twos, and he's shooting an absurd 94% at the rim, 17 of 18 there right at the hoop his scoring still skews heavily towards play finisher nearly 90 percent of his buckets are coming off assists but his role within the phoenix suns offense is not robotic it's far more instinctual conventional rim running bigs don't have the same sense of space and timing as ayton on his rolls to the basket and they most certainly don't include as much decision making even when ayton isn't taking a dribble he often needs to gather and survey so many teams would kill for their centers to have his catch and turnaround jumpers in their ar- arsenal which Aiton knocked down at a 60-plus percent clip last season. There's more room to explore his face-up and out, outside in-games, too. This may represent the peak of Aiton's placement when considering who's in front of him. To pre- but to presume as much places unnecessary limitations on his offense while ignoring his utility as a defensive big who can dominate from drop coverage without ever getting mismatched off the floor. We are entering the top 10, and lo and behold, we have a player who's currently injured. Lamelo Ball was tempted to put him put him higher, Lamelo sidelined to start the season with a sprained left ankle, but the player he became during his first two years more than warrants top 10 placement. Table setters don't get more uninhibited or innovative. He is someone who emboldens teammates to run the floor harder and who lulls half-court defenses into creating gaps through which he can pass. That combination of gall and patience is rare, and it can uplift, and it has already uplifted, an entire offense. Impressions of Lamelo's scoring will vary depending on who you ask. At worst, 
it's right on schedule. He has proved to be a reliable catch and fire three point shooter. And the need for him to develop an off the dribble triple is overstated. He doesn't have to deploy one, but he also drilled 39.5% of his pull-up trays after the 2022 all-star break, tightening up his finishing at the basket and embracing the kind of contact that earns him extra trips to the tar- to the charity stripe. Forgive me. I can't talk is actually the next frontier for LaMelo. If he doesn't reach it, He's still a 20-8 guy with the touch to play off others and the length and size to disrupt opposing offenses away from the ball. If that next frontier is conquerable, though, we're looking at an MVP candidate in waiting, quite frankly. I don't think that overstates anything. Number nine, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, another favorite of this podcast. Overextension did catch up with Shea last year. The Thunder had neither the spacing nor the secondary ball handling to streamline his offensive agency, and it showed in his efficiency on the perimeter. He went from about a 56 effective field goal percentage on jumpers to in 2020, 2021 to a 43 effective field goal percentage in 21, 22. The context of his role helps explain the plunge fueled mostly by his three point shooting among 467 players to average at least 15 minutes per game last year. Only Chris Paul and Luka Doncic saw a larger share of their buckets go unassisted. It's a wonder SGA was still able to clear 50% shooting inside the arc. He plays at a variable cadence all his own, and it transcends the inherent limitations of what's around him. SGA is leaving similar impressions to start this season. The three ball isn't falling at an astronomical clip, but he continues to warp defenses on drives and subsist on hugely difficult looks while somehow dropping in over 55% of his twos and 80 plus percent of his shots at the rim. If he ever gets to work against more consistent defensive separation, or even within an offense that can shoot better than low thirties from, from deep, just, just watch out this. He's an absolute a plus building block to me. Number eight, this was controversial for some, and I know Detroit Pistons fans were relieved to see Cade Cunningham uh, in at number eight. Feel for the game alone just renders Cade Cunningham a superstar in the making, and that's why I have him here. Not just because he's a superstar in the making, but because you already feel his manipulation over what's happening. Sticklers bemoaned the efficiency last season and will continue to do so now. It'll come. Cunningham is knocking down 35% of his threes, um, at least at the, as I was recording this and has noticeably cut down his turnovers out of the pick and roll. Better finishing around the basket should develop in time. He'll go up with more force and pick up his dribble later. Harping on the raw numbers right now doesn't add much value to the discussion, in my opinion, either. Defenses are already laser-focused on Cade. He directs the offense and sees the floor with world-on-a-string manipulation. Overhelping against his drives is endemic to the way defenses guard him, and his court awareness is divine, circular, and unalterable. It won't be long before he's the type of player whose floor captaincy alone ensures his team of turning in a top 10 offense. I think you have to look at the skeleton of players games in these rankings too. And it is just there for him to where I think he's already elevating the play of his teammates of a Jalen Duran, of a Boyan Bogdanovich, even some of the minutes he spent with um, Jay Nivey this season. And, and that matters outside. Oh, what does his individual efficiency numbers look like? And even some of the mistakes he's making when you're looking at, turnovers number seven Darius Garland this was kind of easy for me I I did consider putting him a little higher but you have to consider the names to come select youngsters needed a hot start to this year to solidify their spot in this this list Darius Garland spoiler alert did not it doesn't matter that he looked at Tad shaky in limited action during the Cavs opening night loss to the Raptors nor does it matter that he suffered a left eyelid laceration after logging 13 minutes and hasn't played since his body of work last season is still speaking for itself, and it's loud as hell. 
Few players do a better job of butchering perim- perimeter and helping defenses. Garland wields an operable floater and jumper and parlays that package into dictating the tame terms of engagement in the half court. Last year, he placed in the 86th percentile of isolation scoring efficiency and knocked down 46.3% of his off-the-dribble threes after the All-Star break. Defenses now spin out of control once he gets inside the arc and or leaves his feet, and his teammates reap the benefits. Only Trey Young tossed more assists at the rim last season. That was per PB, play, uh, PBP stats. That's a great website, by the way. Envisioning Garland thriving next to Donovan Mitchell without compromising his value isn't particularly difficult either. Really, it's just a matter of him getting the opportunity to direct an attack amid better spacing. A nod to both how much better he still might be and everything he did last season within the confines of Cleveland's half-court offense. Number six, Zion Williamson of the New Orleans Pelicans. I don't know where to put him. Zion can theoretically land anywhere you want him to finish. Can he be penalized for missing more than half of the regular season games for which he's been eligible to play since entering the NBA? Absolutely. Can he foment unchecked optimism for his interior dominance and the fact he garnered serious All-NBA consideration during his lone, mostly healthy year? Also, absolutely. Plopping him here in sixth place attempts to straddle both sides of the argument. But when forced to choose, I think we should all default to the unchecked optimism side of the spectrum. Never mind the numbers, which send a shiver down your spine themselves. Zion really plays like what if Shaquille O'Neal had more outside in feel and touch and a record-breaking second jump. That player is impossible to comprehend. Yet, somehow, he exists in Zion. And if the prevailing belief ever favors his durability, you'll be hard-pressed to concoct a list like this. Age qualifiers be absolutely damned. That doesn't include Zion at or near the, the tippy top. We are on to the top five with Anthony Edwards, who almost came in behind Zion. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I had some people influence me to put Anthony Edwards up there. Through two seasons and change, Anthony Edwards has offered glimpses into a player without a tangible ceiling. There are nights on which he looks like he will eventually be the Minnesota Timberwolves' most valuable player at both ends, and that he is on course to see his best player alive honors. Perhaps most impressive, on his least memorable nights, Edwards seemingly maintains the floor of someone who will scoop up a handful of all NBA bids. The skeleton of his of the skeleton of his game is that tantalizing. The aesthetics of what he's doing can supersede the end result. Edwards plays with an explosiveness that is immediate, but there's a deliberateness to how he attacks in the half court. He can slow things down and punish defenses with methodical drives and escape dribble jumpers, and he will bust ankles and eagles until egos until he generates the attention to table set for those around him. Hardliners often want to see how meteoric ascensions translate to higher stakes. Edwards has already held up in the pressure cooker, delivering true superstar magic in Minnesota's six-game loss to the Memphis Grizzlies last spring. That definitely helps buoy him here, having some of those hallmark playoff moments already on his resume. Number four, we're getting to the end, folks. Trey Young of the Atlanta Hawks. This hopefully shouldn't surprise anyone. Please do not read too much into Trey Young's wonky shooting splits to start this year. On the heels of DeJounte Murray's arrival, he's attempting a role adaptation not yet undertaken by usage contemporaries such as Luka Doncic and James Harden. Young's average time of possession has dipped from last year, and the frequency with which he's attempting catch-and-fire threes has more than doubled. This search for offensive diversification does nothing to diminish what's already known that Trey is one of the most lethal self-creators in existence. The Atlanta Hawks offense has so routinely and generally imploded without him on the court because he props up everything. Defenses are on tilt before he crosses the timeline because they have to be. His range boils down to if he has the ball, then he's within scoring distance. Trey might lean too heavily on boundless touch for stretches at a time, 
but it is not his crutch. He leverages limitless range and an unconditional green light into live dribble anarchy. His floater is both sudden and, despite his standing six foot one, difficult to block. The attention he draws is the vehicle through which he tees up bunnies at the rim and in the corners. If this season's version of him features more off-ball movement and some scream setting, the Trey Young versus John Morant debate that sort of died last year will resume in earnest, to me, at least. Oh, hey, speaking of John Morant, number three. I'm sure some Memphis Grizzlies folks aren't going to appreciate this. Number three is pretty flipping high. Uh, look, one day... Approximately 23 and 70, 23 years and 76 days ago, flash and substance collided amicably and gave birth to a singular force, unlike any other in history. That force grew up to be John Morant. I don't care how high you put the Memphis Grizzlies on your preseason league pass rankings. It wasn't high enough. Morant is so thoroughly entertaining, so infectiously enjoyable that the number one spot cannot even do him justice. From gravity disproving dunks, to abrupt floaters, to theatrical passes, to the pure and utter sense of unpredictability after he leaves his feet, every possession from him is its own experience. But the beauty of his flair is that it's also essential. The Grizzlies would not win or annihilate expectations almost annually without Ja being Ja. They may be deep and plucky and able to churn out regular season victories without him, but he is their life force against the very best lineups and teams, a functional central nervous system who has diversified his mid-range and outside shooting and touch enough to be deemed unsolvable. Number two, the final two here, I'm assuming you can guess who they are. Jason Tatum is number two. Uh, if you want a debate between him and John Morant, I think that's fine. It's really hard for me, though. We have to start here to believe that Jason Tatum is still only 19. He's 24. He has survived and spearheaded so many different iterations of the Boston Celtics, it feels like he should be in his early to mid-30s. If the start of this season is any indication, there may be no mountains left for Tatum to climb. He honed his off-the-dribble scoring long ago and remains a balanced and versatile defender who can fiercely party crash possessions away from the ball. His improvement as a playmaker has been gradual and culminated in truly complex passing last season. Now... He is flirting with career-high volume at the rim, where he's shooting 80-plus percent, and from the charity stripe. Many interpreted his struggles during the finals as proof of incompleteness. Maybe that's true, but maybe it had more to do with a pesky Golden State Warriors defense designed specifically to complicate his life. And maybe both Tatum and the Celtics' offense are better built to withstand identical hellfire now. More than anything, though, I think it matters that Tatum has already been the best player on a finals team at all. Number one. No mystery here, hopefully, anyway. Luka friggin' Doncic. Never a doubt for me. I don't know. I guess you could if you wanted to really wait defense, try and factor in Tatum here, or I, I don't know how you make the case necessarily for John Morant either. It speaks to the one-man showism of Luka Doncic that the Mavericks lost their second-best player for nothing over the offseason, replaced him with some combination of Spencer Dinwiddie and Christian Wood hopes and dreams, even though both are killing it right now, and they're still considered could be, might be, potentially contenders. There's not another player on this list so comprehensively dominant enough to withstand that type of a loss and float. Well, if everything breaks right, another conference finals cameo isn't out of the question, expectations. Not enough adjectives exist for me to accurately convey Doncic's impact on the offense. His combination of every-level shot-making, vision, strength, chains of speeds, and unflappability is transcendent the stuff of which all-time greats are made. Some can and have and will continue to bemoan the ball dominance. Can heliocentric usage be parlayed into a title? The answer is almost irrelevant. 
Doncic is capable of playing a different way. The Mavs, as of now, as currently constructed, are not. And frankly, if we're being honest, maybe even more so than Giannis Antetokounmpo, Doncic is the closest thing to a contender unto himself the NBA has seen since prime LeBron James. That will do it for me here. That was my top 25 players under 25. Let me know what you think on Twitter, in the comments, if you're watching this on on YouTube, in my DMs. Those are always open. Please remember to hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Like, comment on videos to help the algorithm love us back. Download and subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify. As many mediums as you can get get us from, please go access it. Just to help the community build up, inflate those numbers. Uh, Keep Grant and I rolling in name brand no-show socks. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Follow us on all the socials. Join our Discord. We haven't had... The community's been active. I love all of you. Uh, we haven't had a ton of exponential growth lately. It's slowed down a little bit. So come join our Discord. The link to that is in the YouTube and podcast description. I will not weigh in on every conversation. I try to, but there's a you know over 100 of you in there now. Um, go in there. Talk amongst each other. I love seeing your ideas. Uh, it's Look, it's fun, especially as the season's going to get off and running and as we get into all these bigger picture discussions... Um, And I really think that that's it. Other than, until next time, because Grant's not here, I don't have to apologize to a certain someone else. I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, the indelible, Frank Nielke.